Good day to all you listeners out there and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. If you are unfamiliar with the podcast, basically our thesis is that the Bible is to be read as a single unified story that ultimately points to Christ. So we believe that it is a story, that it should be read as such, that it is unified, that all of it fits together as any story would. And ultimately, like I said, it culminates in the story of Jesus Christ. So that's the thesis that we're going with throughout the podcast. If you have not yet listened to the episodes preceding this one, it is beneficial to do that because of our thesis. We're going through the Bible in real time, highlighting that fact. So listening to those episodes that are before this one really gives you a sense of where the story has started out and where it's going. That being said, if you don't have time, at least go back and listen to last week's episode. We are in numbers now. And so last week's episode was the introduction to numbers. Last week, we went over the first section of Numbers, and that's just the first 10 chapters. It starts out kind of boringly. It just starts out by numbering the Israelite people. And that's how the book got its name, Numbers. Last week, we talked about, though, how the name of the book of Numbers was originally the first word of the book, which is translated in the wilderness. Numbers is about a wilderness journey, which is a way cooler title than Numbers. And actually a really interesting book once you get past the numbering of the people. So it numbers all the people fit for war, minus the Levites who are going to serve around the tabernacle. And then it talks about how the camp of Israel will set up when they take up camp and reset camp with the tabernacle in the middle, then surrounded by the priests and surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel. Much how the structure of the tabernacle itself is with the outer courts on the outside and then the tents and then the most holy place in the middle. And that's, you know, again, a blueprint of the Garden of Eden. We have Eden and then a garden in it, and in the middle of it, these trees. So God's using the same type of blueprints to do all these similar construction places where it revolves around his presence, which is really cool, which brings some life to those boring chapters that are otherwise easy to read over. It gets into the duties of Aaron and his sons and then of the other Levites who have to pack up the tabernacle equipment and hike it to their next destination. And then a lot of things that we went over in Leviticus, different various holiness instructions. You have things in there like the Nazarite vow in chapter 6 and the famous Aaronic blessing. Um, And again, we have things mentioned like the tabernacle being consecrated, the Levites being purified, and the Passover being celebrated, and Yahweh filling the tabernacle. That's how the first 10 chapters went. And that leads us right into chapter 10. And this is going to be a really fun episode. It gets into the really interesting stories. We're going to title this episode Spies and Lies. Let's see where it takes us. We're going to be starting in chapter 10, verse 11 today. In the second year, for when the people were at Sinai. So they're still at Mount Sinai, like we mentioned last week. So they're still in that wilderness. But finally, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the cloud is leading people from the wilderness at Sinai, now leading them to the wilderness at Paran. We are finally moving. We promised you in the intro episode that this book is structured around movement. So here is the first movement. This movement section is going to be from chapters 10 through 12. In this movement section, 
after it talks about them getting up from Sinai and moving, one of the first things that happens besides how the people pack up, which is just saying that the people did what was right as it was instructed in the last section, Moses runs into his brother-in-law, Hobab. Moses convinces Hobab to stay with Israel. His reasoning is that if Hobab stays with Israel, Hobab will help Israel and Moses find good places to camp. So God leads him to a place and, hey, Hobab, where's a good place to set up? Moses, in return of Hobab's help, he says, God's promise is that anyone who is with Israel, those who bless Israel, as was promised to Abraham, God himself will bless. And Moses realizes this. And so although Hobab is not an Israelite, Moses realizes that he is supposed to be part of this kingdom of priests to bring people into God's camp. And so that's what he does with Hobab. And after some resistance, Hobab eventually comes around. We talked about this being somewhat significant besides just the family ties. Dylan, what's the significance of this interaction with Hobab? Like, why is the author even bring it up? We do have kind of this parallel back into Exodus where you get another family member of Moses that comes up. However, this time it's Moses wanting Hobab to actually come along with them. The stated reason, at least in the chapter, is because Moses thinks that Hobab will allow for them to find better camping because Hobab knows his way around the desert so they can actually find places to camp with the whole Israelite population. However, Potentially a bigger meaning why the author might have included this section is the fact that it shows or highlights the fact that the blessing that is on Israel is also for the Gentiles that are among Israel, the non-Israelites that are among Israel. It's not strictly a blessing for Israel and Israel alone. And this is highlighted in verse 31 and 32 of chapter 10, when Moses says, don't leave us, you know where to camp in the wilderness. And then Moses says, if you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. The idea is that the non-Israelites who are among Israel are blessed as a result of the blessing that is upon Israel. And it's really highlighted well here. That great Gentile inclusion, it's there in the beginning and it's there throughout. And then from there, we have a three-day journey leaving the Mount of Yahweh. That is Mount Sinai. This idea of three days from the mountain is really significant. In Exodus 19, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. God tells the people, consecrate yourself for three days. On the third day, come up. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, take a three days journey from Egypt to this mountain. They're likely going three days the opposite way from the mountain of Yahweh. And so pretty cool, whenever the cloud sets out from camp, Moses has this line he always says. This is at the end of chapter 10. When it sets out, he says, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And whenever God's spirit rests, Moses says, Return, O Yahweh, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And again, ten thousand thousands is kind of a hyperbole. Yahweh is faithful to his promises. He has made Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's descendants numerous already, and he is leading them. So God's presence is with them. God is fulfilling promises. Things are looking really good. But then chapter 11, how do things turn out, Dylan? Things do not turn out well. And so if you'll remember from quite a few episodes ago at this point in Exodus, I pointed out the fact that in the book of Exodus, we kind of get the structure 
where Exodus 19, which is when they first get to Mount Sinai, that kind of serves as the high point of the book. Everything preceding Mount Sinai kind of points up to Mount Sinai, and then everything after Mount Sinai kind of points back to Mount Sinai. Now, we are finally leaving Mount Sinai. So for the entire book of Leviticus, we were still at Mount Sinai. So we're finally leaving. And now in the book of Numbers, after we leave Mount Sinai, it's kind of like this descending slope, even from like Exodus 19 all the way through Numbers, just this descending slope of downward bad chaos. It's just not good at all. So in 11, it kind of starts this downward spiral that ultimately culminates in even the great Moses falling before the Lord. So in Numbers 11, we see the first of, well, it's not really the first. They already have complained once. They asked for water at the beginning. But now they start complaining about a bunch of the hardships that they are enduring in the wilderness. And so instead of going up to Yahweh and saying, Yahweh, can you please help us with this? They start grumbling against Yahweh. And so as a result, Yahweh's anger is kindled against the people and he actually releases fire in the camp. And so this is kind of the first of many grumblings in this section where the people directly grumble against Yahweh and then Yahweh's anger is kindled against them. Moses does end up praying for the people and the fires do die down, but nevertheless, the people continue in their grumbling. In verse four now, we see the people start grumbling again. This time, they're saying, oh, we should have never left Egypt because in Egypt, we had all sorts of good things to eat. We had things like cucumbers and melons and all sorts of stuff, leeks, onions, but now all we got is this manna. And so they're grumbling against the Lord's provision, the food that the Lord has provided. And again, instead of asking the Lord for anything else, they grumble against him. And so what does Yahweh do? Well, Yahweh does a few things. First off, Moses, when he approaches Yahweh, instead of going, Yahweh, can you please give the people some meat? He goes, Yahweh, maybe you should just kill me because these people are stubborn and terrible and I hate listening to them groan and the burden is too much for me to bear. So if I have found favor in your eyes, just let me die. A bit melodramatic if you ask me. But nevertheless, instead of killing Moses, fortunately, Yahweh says, how about this, Moses? What you're going to do is you're going to get the elders, the people that are leaders among the people in their various tribes, and you're going to bring them to me, 70 of them total. And I am going to appoint them as co-leaders. And they are going to receive something special from me to allow them to lead in similar fashion to you so that basically the workload of leadership can be dispersed among these elders and yourself so that it's not the sole burden being on you. Again, reminiscence of something we've already gone over in Exodus, where we had Jethro say something very similar to Moses saying that it's not good for you to be the sole leader. Instead, you should actually find people who are trustworthy and you should delegate some of this responsibility. So very similar, hearkening back to Exodus yet again. Continues on, however, after having all of these people appointed as co-leaders with Moses, the Lord then decides to answer the grumblings of Israel. In answering their grumblings, he says, I'm going to provide meat for Israel. Ironically, Moses is the first one to question God. And Moses says, how are you going to get meat out here in the desert for all of these people? He just doesn't believe it. So in verse 23, we see Yahweh answer Moses and go, is Yahweh's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses questions God. 
God rebuts Moses saying that he is in fact powerful enough questioning Moses. So Moses then goes out and tells the people what Yahweh says. God is saying this to Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. So again, the people grumbled, they want meat. God says, fine, I'm going to give you meat. Yahweh has heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now, Yahweh is going to give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it just for one day or for two days or five, 10, or even 20 days, but you're going to eat it for an entire month until it comes out of your noses. You're going to hate it. You're going to loathe it, the text says, because you have rejected Yahweh who is among you and you have wailed against him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So you start reading that and you go, okay, God is answering their call just as he did before with water, but As you continue to read, you realize that even though God is answering and giving them what they wanted when they cried out against God, there's a hint of spite there where Yahweh is going, fine, I'll give you meat, but I'm going to give you meat in abundance. You're going to hate me because all you're going to eat is meat. Because instead of asking him for meat, instead of asking Yahweh for meat, the people cried out against Yahweh. They've rejected Yahweh because they said, you know what? Instead of us following Yahweh, we should have just been back in Egypt. It would have been better if we would have been back in Egypt because we could have eaten whatever we wanted to. And so Yahweh then in turn adds this little bit about because you rejected Yahweh, you're going to eat so much meat that you're going to come to loathe it. And so finally, Moses does speak to the people. He goes up to them and tells them that they're going to get meat In verse 31, a wind from Yahweh drives quail in from the sea and it's scattered up two cubits deep and all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. So much quail. All that day and all that night, the people went out and they gathered quail. No one had gathered less than 10 omers is what the text says. That's a ton of quail. They gathered up a bunch of meat. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But it says, while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of Yahweh burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, that place is named Kibroth Hatavah because there they buried the people who had craved other food. So that last section is really the weirdest bit of this. Corey, what do you make of that section? It's really interesting. And there's actually one little story in between the complaining for food and the giving of the quail and the judgment. There's this little story where God takes some of the spirit of Moses and puts it on the 70 elders. But then there's these two random guys, Eldad and Medad, and the spirit registered on them. They're Israelites, it says, but they weren't one of those who went to the tent, like the other 70 elders, and they started prophesying. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' main assistant, says, Moses, make them stop. But Moses realizes that this is a really good thing. It's like, I wish that everyone were prophets of Yahweh. I wish that Yahweh would put his spirit on them all. Moses is getting the big picture. He realizes that he should be including Gentiles into God's people. He realizes that it is good for God to give his spirit onto all people And for him to be the lone prophet or the lone guy where God's spirit rests is not a good thing. We've seen that time and time again with Moses getting burnt out. So anyways, there's this little interruption, that story I just mentioned. And then it gets to God judging the people, which is really interesting because it's such a delayed judgment. At least it seems like that from what just happened. So the people complain about the quail then God gives the quail. And then he gives this really gnarly plague upon the people. 
And so that's actually one reading of it. It's either this delayed judgment or the grumbling or that little detail of while it, the meat was still between their teeth. That's when the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people. And that's when Yahweh struck the people down with the plague. It could be that the people continually are not seeking after God. So they're more concerned with the physical world. They're more concerned with the starkness of having no food like there was in Egypt. And they're just refusing to see the reality of God who is spirit. So they just cannot see what's really going on. They do not have God's point of view. It could be that God is judging them because they're not stopping and saying, oh, thank you, Lord, for giving us this meat. Oh, God, we realize that our grumbling was in vain. We're sorry. Please forgive us. There is no repentance. There is no thankfulness. It's just meat. They're just focused on the meat. We even see Jesus point back to stories like this where Jesus is mad at the people for just focusing on the bread and the fish in the same way the people in the wilderness cannot understand that the God who is spirit is doing these things and deserves thanks and people should repent for doing wrong. The people are doing wrong just as they always did. Just back in Exodus, the end of chapter 15, start of chapter 16, the people complain like Dylan points out. The same thing is happening again here. And it's not just the people of Israel in general. In chapter 12, what happens is that now Moses' own brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, speak out against Moses because Moses had married a Cushite woman. We know that man and woman should not take more than one spouse. One man should be married to one woman. One woman should be married to one man. We get that idea at the very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. This is wrong. But what the author of Numbers is more concerned with is the grumbling against the leader of the people of Israel. And God put Moses in charge. Miriam and Aaron are grumbling against Moses. And as they're grumbling against Moses, Yahweh speaks up and he says, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And that's got to be like the scariest thing ever for Miriam and Aaron, I'm sure. Verse 6 of chapter 12 still, it says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of Yahweh was kindled against them. His presence departs. And once his presence as this cloud is removed, Miriam has a leprous skin disease. And it's either leprosy or some other skin disease. She's stricken by Yahweh. And going back to the question of like, well, is it wrong for Moses to do this, to take another wife? Yes, it was wrong. But the point is that God points out here is, this is my prophet. This prophet's not like any other prophet because I speak to other prophets in visions and dreams. Think of Joseph at the end of Genesis. He got dreams from Yahweh. Moses has been speaking face to face with Yahweh at the end of Exodus. It says that Yahweh considered Moses his friend. It's a very serious ordeal to go against Yahweh and to go against his friend and his prophet Moses. So that's what the text is trying to focus on. And so Miriam's leprous and Aaron immediately goes to Moses. Oh, my Lord, do not punish us. We're foolish. We've sinned. And so Moses cried out to God on her behalf. 
But Yahweh says, you know what? She should be ashamed for seven days. She should be unclean for seven days. So she's going to be out of the camp this whole week. And at the end of the week, I will heal her, but she cannot resume being part of the camp for an entire week. So pretty heavy story. The focus of this, which is kind of an odd story, is trying to show us that everyone is disobeying Yahweh. As they were leaving Egypt and making a covenant with Yahweh, as Dylan mentioned earlier, they all said, we will do whatever Yahweh says. But Numbers is really focusing on the people just being unable to hold up their end of the bargain. So we started with the people in general, all of them. Now we're getting to Moses' own family, Miriam and Aaron. And now we're just wondering, like, how well will camp hold on, right? But then we get to the end of chapter 12. And the last verse, chapter 12, verse 16, pretty short chapter. It says, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So at the middle of chapter 10, the beginning of our podcast today, the people are leaving Sinai to head towards Paran. So finally, they're in Paran. That traveling section is over. And now chapter 13, we're going to continue the episode today. And we're going to get into the spies. Really interesting story. Dylan, anything else to add on from the desert wanderings? I think the only thing that I wanted to add was from chapter 12. I wanted to highlight verse 3 and point out the fact that if the Torah and this book in particular was under Mosaic authorship as we do hold, it does strike me as really funny just picturing Moses writing about himself. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the entire face of the earth. So That's hilarious. Yeah, it begs the to... question, is Moses writing this saying like, oh, I could fill myself up a little or is God making him write this? And he's like really embarrassed. Like, oh man, I don't want to talk about myself. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question for sure. But that was the only other thing I wanted to point out from the wandering section there. So we can go ahead and jump into now chapter 13. So we're going to cover 13 and 14 with the last little bit of the episode today. And we're going to talk about the spies that actually enter the land and the ramifications of what happens when the people actually reject the report that Joshua and Caleb bring saying that it is good to go into the land. So in chapter 13, we get the narrative of the spies entering the land. So we finally get from Sinai and we get up to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, if you remember anything from our Genesis discussion, there's been a whole bunch of times when the patriarchs entered the land, they were in the land, it was awesome and great. Abraham even went so far as to send a servant to get a wife for his son Isaac because he didn't want Isaac to leave the land. And nevertheless, God prophesied that the people would leave the land and they would be gone for 400 years. They would be enslaved in a land not their own for 400 years, but yet he would bring them back. So it's prophesied all the way back in Genesis that they're going to get to this point. So even though we've seen grumbling, even though we've kind of had some low patches at the beginning of chapter 13, we should be psyched because we are actually seeing the fulfillment of what God had said all the way back in Genesis, or at least so we think. So the people are on the border of Canaan, and then they go, okay, let's go ahead and send in some spies. Verse 4 starts talking about the names from each tribe that go on the spy mission. Um, verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun, which is really interesting because Joshua has so far been called Joshua, son of Nun. And there's a little bit of an explanation down in verse 16 of this chapter, chapter 13 still. 
And it says, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So just a really interesting note. So if you're reading through those names and wondering like, where's Joshua? And you're too impatient like me earlier today to get to that little explanation verse. But something interesting about the name Joshua and Hosea is here where Joshua's name is mentioned, it's Yehoshua. Or, I mean, to make it a little simpler, it's essentially Yehoshea. It just has this Y, or in Hebrew called a Yod, in front of the name Hosea. So both names mean salvation is from Yahweh or Yahweh's salvation. So same meaning of the name, there's a slightly different variant to the spelling. So I just wanted to point that out. That's the first instance. I think the only instance we get of that little name explanation. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So I wanted to do a brief little aside on that because I thought that was very interesting. Uh, And also just in case you were reading along looking for exactly what Corey was looking for going, hey, where's Joshua and Caleb in this? But anyway, so these are the names of the people that are sent into Canaan to basically spy out the land. They're supposed to come back and give a report to the people and say whether or not the land is good and ready to be taken. And so they go in verse 25, it says at the end of 40 days, they come back from exploring the land. So they go into the land, they explore it for 40 days, and then they come back and they give their report to Israel. So in 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them into the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. And so this is where they actually give the report. We went into the land to which you sent us, and in fact, it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. It's amazing. But, and here's the but, and this is where everything falls apart. The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, they live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Well, we as the readers, we know that. These are all the ites. These are all of the bad characters that come from Ham, the cursed brother. And we know for a fact that these are a bunch of the bad people that do, in fact, live there. So it doesn't come as a surprise to us, but to them, it seems to come as a big surprise. Not only is it a surprise, instead of them going, hey, there's a bunch of big people there, but nevertheless, we have Yahweh, so let's go take it. They say, actually, these people are scary. How about we don't go get ourselves killed? And they don't trust Yahweh. Up until this point, we've had a number of grumblings. We've had the grumbling with water, the people grumbling against Yahweh saying, hey, we don't have any water. We had the people grumble and it resulted in Yahweh's anger burning against them with a literal fire in the camp. We had the people grumbling against Yahweh because they didn't trust him, saying it would be better to be back in Egypt. So basically spurning the exact thing that Yahweh did for them in taking them out of Egypt, saying, you know what? It would be better if Yahweh never came along at all and we were back there to eat our leeks and onions. And now they're saying, you know what? We don't trust Yahweh enough that we believe that he can take us into this land and that we can claim it for ourselves. Even though we as the readers and probably these guys as well know that Yahweh has actually prophesied of this very moment when they're going to get to the land and they're going to take it because it's been promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But instead, they chicken out. Caleb, however, silences the people before Moses and says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. 
But the men who had gone with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those who live in it. All the people that we saw were of great size. We saw Nephilim there. Remember when we chatted about them, these amazing, massive descendants of Anak who come from the Nephilim, who are these descendants of these great and mighty men. We seem like grasshoppers in comparison to these huge people. So basically, they start freaking everybody out and saying, let's not go in the promised land. Only Caleb and Joshua we're going to see are the ones who are speaking out and saying, let's go into the land. So that's where we end in chapter 13. Corey, did you want to point anything else in chapter 13 before we jump into 14? This one little detail, Joshua and Caleb, Caleb is mentioned as cutting down some of the fruit of the land to show the people. It says Caleb and one other person carried it on a pole between the two of them. Joshua is that other one who was carrying the goods of the land on the pole to show the people. And we can infer that because Joshua is also going to speak up in just a second. So that's just a minor detail that we have to infer the two guys carrying the goods on the pole in chapter 13, like verse, uh, I think it's verse 23, carrying a cluster of grapes and some pomegranates, some figs, um, that's Caleb and Joshua. And that takes us right into chapter 14. The whole congregation is crying and they're weeping. And again, the people are grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And so the congregation, they get together and said, you know what? I wish we died in the land of Egypt or that we died in the wilderness. So why should we go to this land and fall by the sword? Why should we become a prey there? So you know what? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's choose a leader. So they want to get a new leader besides Moses to be able to go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron by his side, they fall on their faces and they're just so bummed because they know that they're not really grumbling against Moses as the leader or Aaron as the priest. They're grumbling against Yahweh, the God who is doing these things. We keep talking about this every week that Moses and Aaron aren't doing hardly anything. They're just doing what God says, right? Which is something that, that takes pretty considerable guts with this really tough crowd. Moses and Aaron are falling on their faces. I'm sure they're weeping, crying out before God. But verse 6 and 14, Joshua and Caleb were among the spies. They tore their clothes and they start talking to the people of Israel. And so they just give their report again. They say the land that we spied out is exceedingly good. And if Yahweh delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. So again, they're just trying to put the focus where it should be. The characters who are walking with God can clearly see, oh yeah, if God's going to do this, he'll do it easily. I mean, God brought us through the Red Sea. God won a fight just because Moses held his staff above his hands, right? So they've seen what God has done. They just simply remember and believe. But the rest of the people, they either don't remember or they just choose not to believe in the sight of a new circumstance. As Joshua, Caleb, they give this report, the people's response is in verse 10. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. But again, the glory of Yahweh appears in front of the tent to all the people. And here Yahweh says again, he said this before, back in chapter 32 of Exodus. How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. 
And so, just like in that section in Exodus, Moses, he again intercedes for the people, where he says, the Egyptians will hear of it, and they'll say that you couldn't do it, so you killed them in the wilderness. So don't let these other nations gloat over you. Your name is greater than that. And then he repeats back to Yahweh, Moses does, that is. Uh, Moses repeats back to Yahweh, he told Moses as he turned his back to him in the cleft of the rock, saying, You are Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Again, this is Moses' intercession. He recounts who Yahweh is. He uses Yahweh's own words to Yahweh. And then, of course, Yahweh relents of destroying Israel and starting over with Moses, which is something he had already done. Before we get to this next section of the judgment to come, so God's going to choose another judgment besides killing all the people starting over with Moses. But everything that's happening so far, from, I mean, pretty much the whole of Numbers, has already happened before. So we talked about the holiness codes. They're already given, at least most of them, in Leviticus. Here, this is a new story, but similar things happening. So remember back in Exodus where Moses was having too much of a burden. And so it was actually Moses' father-in-law who came out to meet him in the camp of Israel who gave him advice to choose some leaders to help take the burden off him. Well, that's what happened at the beginning of this section. Moses' brother-in-law comes out to meet Moses. And then Moses by Yahweh's command this time, chooses 70 elders to help out. So this is just really similar stuff. The people complain back in Exodus about water. The people complain in the book of Numbers about food. And so it just keeps going back and forth. But really, following all the things that we have seen so far in Exodus, and I believe that we should be making this connection back to Exodus because of what's about to come about in this next section, the actual judgment. So again, he doesn't kill them, but he instead says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land. God mentions that there is these 10 disobediences or 10 times they put Yahweh to the test, which was actually one of the places in the wilderness that they named in Exodus because they put God to the test. They named it Hebrew for testing. So from the first disobedience in Exodus at the end of 15 until this disobedience now, that's 10 times that Yahweh is tracking. So we should have been hinting the similarities and being drawn back to Exodus because that's what Yahweh's doing now. So remember these 10 times he put me to the test. Therefore, none of these people shall see the promised land except for Caleb because he has a different spirit. That's verse 24 of chapter 14. And then he goes on to say down in verse 30, where he also includes Joshua. So Caleb and Joshua, they have a different spirit in them, unlike the spirit that you all have, the rest of Israel. Really interesting choice of words. We're already seeing that Moses sees that it is good for the spirit of Yahweh to be poured out on other people. And yet Caleb is being charged with having a different spirit than the rest of the camp. And this spirit allows him to follow Yahweh fully. 
right? And so this is like New Testament talk, walking in step with God's spirit, the spirit allowing people to do what's right in God's eyes, empowering them. So Caleb and Joshua give a good word. They will see the land. But for the rest of Israel, for every day that the spies went and spied out the land of Canaan will be a year that you all will travel and wander in the wilderness. So God smacks his gavel in the courtroom and says, you're sentenced to 40 years of wandering the wilderness. And he charges them with their own words. You guys were scared of being prey to the good land. So now you will be prey to this wilderness. The thing that you were scared of is now your punishment because the thing that you were scared of was irrational. I was with you. So now you are going to be a prey, but your children, younger than 20, will get to enter the lands, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. This is this a huge blow to all of Israel. They're wandering the wilderness. Although they're complaining, it seems now that all this wandering has happened for nothing. And so the people are mourning getting this judgment from God. So they try and get the people together. Say, hey guys, let's get together. Let's go into the land that Yahweh has promised. We have sinned, but we can go and make it right. But Moses says, no, (laughs) you guys blew it. There is no coming back from this. It's set in stone and you just have to serve your punishment. You should repent for sure. But if you're going to do this, that would just be sinning even further. So don't sin any further. But the people ignore Moses like they always do. And they ignore Yahweh as they always do. And they go into the land that they presume that they can just go in and do the words that Yahweh said. But as they go in to take the land, Yahweh was not with them. And the Amalekites, the Canaanites who lived in that country, came down and defeated them and pursued them really far. But this is just a really interesting story that shows following God is a relationship. You can't just do something that worked in the past and expect it to work again. And that's something that the people of Israel fail to learn at all. I was going to say remember, but they just never even try to walk with God in relationship. And concluding thoughts, I wanted to come back to this idea that Caleb, it says, has a different spirit than the rest of the Israelites. It's really interesting that this wasn't something that was picked up by any of the New Testament authors as something to build a theology on. You know, you have Paul and the rest of them really picking out a lot of verses similar to this one and really building up a new covenant theology based on how the Old Testament actually speaks about how God operates and works and things like this. And one thing I wanted to point out, even though this particular verse isn't something that the New Testament picks up on, it is probably something that highlights a truth that is the case then and does continue to be the case up until the New Testament and even until today. And that is, is that God does give his spirit to people, that that spirit allows for people to act in accordance with godly wisdom. And that because of that, the new covenant is specifically shown to be important in things like Jeremiah 31, for instance, specifically because people who don't have the spirit of God, people who don't seek the mind of God, aren't able to act in accordance with the commands of God. They don't have godly wisdom. And that seems to be the crux of the biblical issue that we've already expressed in our exploration of Genesis, for instance, where the very first problem that plagued humanity was a question of whose wisdom are you going to choose? 
Are you going to choose God's wisdom or are you going to choose your own human wisdom? And without the spirit of God, you are plagued now as a result of human sinfulness to choose your own wisdom. And that's exactly what we see here. The reason that this covenant seems to fail time and time again, and that the people of Israel just don't get it and continue to blow it, even if they have high moments, is specifically because they inevitably choose their own wisdom over and against God's wisdom. So it's probable that the spirit here that Caleb is shown to have that's different is the spirit that allows for him to choose godly wisdom. And that is why this covenant seems to be lacking when compared with the new covenant. That's why the new covenant actually comes into play, specifically because God then gives his spirit to all people and that all people who follow him are able to act in accordance with godly wisdom and seek the mind mind of Christ. So that's that. I also did want to point out one brief little thing, and that is just with regard to the New Testament's usage of the Old Testament, since I mentioned it. It's really interesting because often you have scholars and things come along and suggest that the New Testament authors, when they look back at Old Testament passages such as this one and the others that they actually explore— When they do that, when they exegete those passages, a lot of scholars suggest that they're adding something to them, that they're taking the natural meaning and kind of turning it on its head and then creating a theology that never actually existed back in the Old Testament. However, I would like to point out that I think that is utter hogwash. I think that is ridiculous to suggest that that didn't exist in the Old Testament, that the New Testament author's usage of the Old Testament isn't actually adding something back into the Old Testament that never existed, but bringing something out that God has always had in the Old Testament that a natural reading would actually lead one to suggest that these readings are, that is the New Testament author's readings of the Old Testament, that those readings are natural, that the New Testament's usage of the Old Testament is actually the preferred usage of the Old Testament. So when we look at the Old Testament, we should be looking for stuff like the New Testament authors bring out, because I think that they really do give us a good pattern of how to go about reading and exegeting the Old Testament. We're going to go ahead and wrap up there. That gets us all the way through chapter 14. So again, we covered chapters 10, verse 11 on through chapter 14. Next week, we're going to briefly skim through some of the holiness code because we've already seen a lot of that in Leviticus. And then we're going to jump back into the narrative section and talk more about Israel's rebellion because it just goes downhill from here. Unfortunately, we don't have good news in next week's episodes, and that's just me forewarning you. So again, guys, thank you for tuning into the podcast today. We hope that you guys enjoyed it. If you guys do enjoy the podcast, please feel free to leave a review wherever you listen. A positive review does help the podcast get more views. It helps it get out to more people. So a positive review, no matter where it's at, but iTunes especially is awesome in helping the exposure of the podcast. Also, if you want to stay up to date with the most real-time information, Facebook page. We do have a website as well, www.thebibleisastory.com. There you'll find the blog, you'll find the YouTube channel, you'll find the podcast and all of our other resources. And finally, if you do want to donate to the podcast, you can do that by going to the website and clicking on that donate button. 
This podcast is funded completely out of our own pockets. And while it's not a tremendous expense, there is expense that goes along with hosting it. So if you guys do want to help out the podcast and keep it running, that is the place to do it. Finally, I would also like to point out if you want to chat, if you want to ask questions, anything like that, we do have a email address. Scripturechronicles at gmail.com is the place to send those in. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a great rest of whatever the stinking heck time of day it is. And with that, shalom, shalom adios. adios.